1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
2: Donald Trump's consequential presidency raised many questions such as, is the carnage he spoke about in his inaugural address shaking faith in global capitalism? Are the culture wars shaking faith in liberal democracy? Does China suggest that capitalism works better without democracy? Or is democracy working better without capitalism. Uh, Martin Wolf is the associate editor of the Financial Times, its chief economics commentator. And he's been thinking about these broad themes, these big questions for his book, The Crisis of Democratic Capitalism. So welcome to you. Um, it's a great pleasure to be with you. And you started the book, as I think it'd be interesting if you started this in the same way, explaining
1: why your family history makes you a pessimist. I would say makes me alert at least it eliminates complacency. So I'm the child of two refugees from Hitler's Europe. My father came from Austria, my mother from Holland. The latter, my mother escaped by a couple of days, really, from the German advance on a trawler with her immediate family. But the rest of their wider families, the families beyond their immediate parents and siblings on both cases, were killed in the Holocaust, a very, very large number of people. Um, I don't really know quite how many, but certainly over 40. And the story that led to that uh, catastrophe in Europe, and catastrophe for my parents' family, is of course of much wider significance, because what happened was the breakdown of civilized order within Europe, the rise of fascism and Nazism, the death of more than 50 million people. And so inevitably, I asked myself, why did this happen? And in my view, there were many reasons. But one of the most important was economic catastrophe, particularly the Great Depression.
2: Yes. Well, the other thing that comes out of that story is that, you know, some of your family got on the trawler and some didn't. And, and those that didn't just didn't see the problem. Uh, are, are we
1: in that phase now? I think there is a natural tendency, and I, I think it's admirable and mostly sensible for people to assume that the world in which they live is solid and stable and will continue as they've known it. But unfortunately, history does not bear out that view. Things don't necessarily last as people have known them. And the last 140 years or so have certainly proved that in Europe with the two world wars, the Great Depression, the catastrophes I talked about, and of course in other countries, we've had the most violent revolutions which have led to the death of um, tens of millions of people. So apparently stable societies, including even apparently stable, ordered societies with rule of law, basic principles of stability, can disintegrate completely if the pressures become too great. And that's something we just have to bear in mind. So I try to tell people that just because, for example, Britain has been democratic and stable for, for a very, very long time, doesn't guarantee it will continue to be so. I hope it will be so.
2: Now then, y- your basic uh, argument in this book is that capitalism and democracy go well together. Do you want to talk us through why you think that why why you why you're you know worried that maybe the chinese example is suggesting
1: that uh, capitalism is better without democracy well i think i have two themes which are both aspects of what you've just said which is that capitalism and democracy can go and have gone very well together and where they have gone together they have produced what are, I think by a long way, the most prosperous, most tolerable, freest societies in human history. And actually, it turns out, even the happiest ones. So they have been a tremendous success. So And I argue, in addition, that they do need each other for full flourishing. Capitalism needs democracy to protect it from the extremes of of predatory plutocracy. And democracy needs capitalism to protect it from the over-politicization of every aspect of society. And, uh, and that, in my view, would guarantee the breakdown of democracy. So they need each other, but they're also in tension with each other. Very important, because democracy is a fundamentally egalitarian idea. Well, capitalism, while it offers opportunities to everybody, they're certainly not equally distributed. And these tensions can, if not under control, basically disrupt democracy. And similarly, if democracy turns into demog- demagogy and would and autocrats would be autocrats arise, as I think we've recently seen, uh, democracy will die, and quite probably capitalism too, because it will become crony capitalism. Now, you talk about China, and I agree that China's had four very good decades. Uh, by introducing a capitalist element into their autocratic system. But I think it's pretty obvious and it's become pretty obvious in the last 10 years and even more in the more recent past that there too, a great tension emerges. There are many ways in which the autocrat above the law, not accountable to anyone, can make both civilized society, obviously not democratic society, but civilized society intolerable, as happened with their COVID lockdown policies. And as we've also seen, they can feel that they are being under attack, being their position, the position of the autocrat, is being eroded by the power of capitalists, which they want to suppress. And in the process, they undermine the market economy itself. So I think the marriage of dictatorship, autocracy, and capitalism in China is eroding. But I agree it can work. It has some big advantages in some ways, its ability to plan, its ability to mobilize resources. And those of us in Western democracies and in democratic capitalism, as it were, need to understand what we're doing wrong if we're going to continue to survive and prosper. Before we get
2: on to what's going wrong, I'm I just wanted to know. I mean, do you, do you? It was a big question about China, really. Do you think having a leader who's above the law uh, means it'll be less desirable to live there, a less happy place, and a less well-functioning society, or that it's
1: unstable and that it's it it won't sustain? I think I I would think both are true. I mean, that it's less desirable, you know. There isn't a flood of people in the rest of the world trying to get into China. There is a lot of now a a great many Chinese people, obviously mostly more prosperous people who who want to leave. I mean, there's no doubt about that. I'm well aware of it. So, yes, people on the whole don't want, if they're given the choice to live in a society where they have no political or civil rights that they can actually defend against the state. Where there is no rule of law, where the whim or will of their political superiors and above all the great leader as it were, is unchallengeable, where they can never get rid of that person I mean just contrast what Britain managed to do with Liz truss in a very in a very messy way, but quickly and peacefully without anyone dying when it turned out she was a really bad leader. nobody can do that with she. Even though, in my view, uh, Xi Jinping has made some really, really big mistakes, which have cost an immense amount to ordinary Chinese people. So I think that most people, if they had the chance, which they won't have, would probably rather like to be a bit freer than they are. Now, I'm not, I'm not trying to to, in, to guess exactly what 1.4 billion Chinese people think. I've no idea. But the evidence we have suggests this is not really what most people would choose if they have the chance.
2: Now, we in other podcasts, we've talked about what's going on and we'll do some more of it. You know, these spin dictatorships, the Orbans, the Erdogans, Putin, Trump, Brexit, all the, all that. And we're you know, trying to understand the nature of it. I, I guess what your book is is concentrating on more is is what's caused it and what's going on underneath that's that's led to this shaking of confidence in you know post-war settlement that seemed to work pretty well for everyone. Can you just go through that? How much of this goes back to two thousand and eight? I mean, I, I sometimes wonder whether that crash was much more consequential than we thought at the time.
1: Well, my thesis here is that we went bankrupt in the famous quote from Hemingway, slowly and then quickly. And the quickly was indeed the global financial crisis, which was, I believe, a turning point. That's a central point of my argument. The slowly was to summarize long arguments, which are central to my book, that from maybe the 70s onwards, the 1970s onwards, early 1980s, there were a set of changes in our economies which were not the fault of anybody, as it were. They were things that happened in the logic of a changing economy, which also, at the same time, changed the underlying post-war settlement, as you'd describe it. And in addition to that, there were policy changes. So these were options, as it were, taken, which exacerbated those shifts. So this is the long term process. And just to summarize very briefly those two elements of the longer term process, I argue that there were two longer term changes, or perhaps three, that were really important. The first was deindustrialization. And the main cause of deindustrialization was the ongoing and massive productivity improvements in manufacturing faster than in any other major sector of the economy. At a time when in our economies, we were getting towards saturation, if you like, with, with manufactured goods. As it were, everybody by you know, the 80s had a car, not everybody, but lots of people had cars, they had washing machines, they had refrigerators, all sorts of appliances. They already had them. So that demand turned into a replacement demand. And the uh, meanwhile, the number of workers you needed to make things diminished dramatically. And this was exacerbated by trade changes, but it was at a productivity change. That was crucial. It meant that the industrial working class, a crucial element in the post-war settlement, became just much smaller. The second big structural change was, technolo- which was a technological shift towards what economists call in an ugly term, skill-intensive production. So basically, the demand for people with university degrees increased rapidly relative to those without it. And the relative pay of those with university degrees also rose rapidly, particularly in the 80s and 90s. And this was a very big shift in the whole structure of the economy and labor market. And finally, of course, there was the opening, not of us, but of countries like China, but above all China, which generated completely new competitors with completely new labor costs and so forth in all the world economy, including our own. And it meant also that our monopoly, historic monopoly of industrial know-how sort of disappeared as it had before. It just as before it fled across borders. So this was really a really big change to this then were policy changes, deregulation of labor markets, Deregulation of finance, elimination of exchange controls, all changed the economy along with the acceptance of the Milton Friedman doc, doctrine about the role of the company as a shareholder value maximization, profit maximization. These things together changed how the capitalist economy operated in a way that favored financial interests, in favored Corporate sector management and shifted the income distribution pretty clearly towards the top of our society. So these were the long-term structural shifts. Then, in after, t- for reasons I won't have time to go into here, and I discussed re- really in my previous book, the shifts and the shocks. The financial crisis came along as a result of a long debt accumulation, which itself papered over some of the cracks I've talked about that I just described in our economies, keeping demand going. And the result of that was, one, it made absolutely clear in a way that almost nothing else could, that the people in charge of our economies, that is governments, central banks, regulators, bankers, didn't know what they were doing and or were insane risk takers and uh, worse when they got into terrible trouble they were rescued they had to be rescued i think but it made it look the whole game look completely unfair rigged against ordinary people it made them very very angry that's completely understandable i think and then the second effect of the financial crisis particularly severe in britain is that it led to subsequently to austerity and a long period of exceptionally low growth in living standards So one of my favorite statistics is that in 2021, GDP per head, real incomes per head, roughly speaking, in the UK economy are more than 30 percent, is more than 30 percent lower than it would have been if the pre-financial crisis trends had continued. So I argue there are long-term processes which came to a head as a result of this disastrous financial crisis. And that Loss of trust in the people in charge then made people start looking around and saying, I want a new leader. So there were a couple of I
2: mean, the consequence of that process. Some of it sort of just trends, historical trends, some of it policy mistakes. The, the consequence was higher levels of inequality
1: and undermining confidence in the system. Is that got it? Well, there were many consequences, stagnant real incomes, in some countries, higher living, higher inequality, and that depended very much on what they did about it. It was particularly bad in the US, less true in the UK, but worse than in the continental Europe. And in addition, the this sense that... The people they were supposed to trust, the experts, as it were, were not demonstrably not trustworthy. And when that happens, people look around and say, well, who can we trust if we can't trust those people? Maybe Donald Trump, maybe Boris Johnson. Who knows?
2: Right. And so that that sort of leads to this post-truth world as well, do you think?
1: Or is that a different different development. Yes, I think it is related. I mean, obviously, that's where new media and another aspect of technological change come in. It's become much, much easier to bypass the gatekeepers, the gatekeepers of public service broadcasting or of traditional media. They weren't great gatekeepers, but they had to keep some sort of check on what they said. But with our new media, of course, you can disseminate misinformation, lies and so forth, costlessly to the entire globe. So the new media are clearly very important. But my thesis, and I have to say on this, I'm not completely confident, but I, it is my thesis, that there wouldn't have been such an open ear, as it were, to this spate of misinformation on so many topics if there had not already been a reason to dis, to doubt, to disbelieve, the opinions and thoughts of acknowledged and accredited experts. You know, if the accredited economists, economics experts didn't know how to manage the financial system, why should you assume that the accredited medical experts knew how to manage a pandemic? Maybe vaccines are all a fraud. So it seems to me not a big stretch, though I don't want to oversell it, from saying, well, one class of experts clearly turned out not to know what they were talking about, at least that's how it seemed. So, why not others? And you end up with this general distrust. Is it also a factor in
2: all of this? I mean, how important do you think it is that companies seem to be getting bigger and bigger? I mean, you're at the FT and you'll have a much sort of better idea of this than me, but just that there is a concentration
1: of wealth in ever fewer number of major global corporations. Yeah that's an interesting question because that tends to go up and down with the formation of new industries but what is certainly true is there is very clear evidence that we have a new a generation of new giants particularly in the technology sector and the economics of the technology sector are very peculiar relative to past giants like General Motors or Ford, the dominant companies of the middle of the 20th century in the U.S., and similar stories would apply here, in that there are essentially infinite economies of scale for a tech company. So if they can serve 100,000 people, they can serve everyone on, on Earth at essentially the same cost. That's extraordinary. And secondly, they don't employ many people. And the people they do employ are very, very highly skilled technologically adept people and lots of people abroad assembling products. So the result is they don't do much to generate incomes and wealth for large numbers of people. Nothing like the old industrial giants of the past. And at the same time, they generate enormous profits in markets where they are essentially monopolists or have been monopolists. And then we gave up on competition policy. Uh, For many reasons, particularly in the US, which allowed these giants, which are, of course, American, to uh, gobble up pretty well all their potential competitors. Uh, Whenever a new competitor emerged, they bought them up. So this led to an extraordinary concentrations of wealth and economic power because they are a new set of gatekeepers. If you want to be a successful business, the way Google search works determines how well your business does. These are gatekeepers to the market economy. And Facebook serves similar functions in politics. Most of the revenue of media companies ended up with these giants. So this is a transformative development in our economic systems. The crucial point is they may not be in, in every respect bigger than the previous chance were relative to our economies. They were, the Americans were already worried about the new trusts and, and started with antitrust policy in the early 20th century. So it's not fundamentally new. What is new, I think, is the way they exercise their power and influence and the fact that we have sort of given up controlling it. So we, we've got this uh, big change in the nature of, of, let's say,
2: nature of modern capitalism, and the, and capitalism has changed before. You know, uh, there have been either crises or just big structural changes in capitalism before. And and I guess from your original story, what you're saying is that democracy hasn't always delivered the controls we need and 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 changed the leaderships
1: and uh, produced good outcomes. Well, in the past. You know the relationship between democracy and capitalism, our economic and political systems have gone through turmoil and stress in the British case over for two centuries or more uh, in america It's not so different, and they adjust to one another they have to that's the key thing. they adjust to one another so long, of course, as the political process remains democratic and remains open to the pressure from the vast mass of ordinary people. And it doesn't become an autocracy and it doesn't become a plutocracy. That's central to my argument. But if that is avoided, if those fates are avoided, history suggests that we will start making changes in our political systems, well, one of those was we we went to universal suffrage democracy, for example. Uh, that took a long time. And of course, in our economic system, uh, we made many changes, notably in the middle of the 20th century with the New Deal in America, with the beginning of the welfare states in, uh, well, the establishment of the welfare states in this country and other European countries, and the Uh, That's a a new settlement, a new way of doing democratic capitalism. I do agree that we're going to have to recalibrate this again. There are lots of questions about how to do it. And for reasons I put forward in the book, it is going to be more difficult this time, both because the economic forces upon us are different and more difficult. And of course, because to put it bluntly, most of our governments are running out of money. That is we can't raise taxes in the same way as we did in the past, because they are actually by historical standards already very high. So the challenges are enormous. But that's what we have to do. Yeah, well, uh, let, let's
2: let's talk about the future. This is uh, the title of the series. And often we cram it in at the end. But in your book, you've actually got a whole, you know, the second half of the book really on what is to be done. So looking at looking ahead, let's split it into economics and politics. And I, I, maybe I could give you some prompts. And you could tell us how you see uh, the best way forward in these areas. So you're talking about
1: competition. What is it that you think needs to happen in that area? Well, I think the fundamental principle is to introduce the idea that the, the, that market power matters. It's not just a matter of whether the goods and services available are cheap to consumers. For a long time, our general approach on competition policy was that if something didn't hurt consumers in an obvious way, it was fine. Now, my argument here is that market power matters because it influences not only the operation of the market, but also the operation of politics. So in looking at social media, we have to, for example, in the new technology, we have to ask ourselves whether the monopoly they have, even if the services they provide are free, is one that undermines really important social goods, like uh, having accurate information, like having different ways of doing things which these giants don't favor. And so I think our competition policy, or if you like, our regulatory structure, in the new economy has to be rethought in quite important ways. It's going to be very difficult to do, but I don't think anyone can be very happy with how these entities are working. And that's quite particularly true in the area of media. So that's one example. We have to rethink what we're doing. And that is beginning to happen very encouragingly in America, which has always been the leader on competition policy until recently with this new administration who have people with very different and very interesting views on what competition policy should be about.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail—from accepting payments to managing inventory. Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com/system, all lowercase
2: Okay, can you just
1: give us an example
2: of what you're finding encouraging there?
1: Well, uh, the present head of competition policy in the US administration is is famous for work she's done on the way uh, competition works. I think, if I remember correctly, her work was on Amazon. And there are lots of questions there which you could ask about, to take, for example, Amazon. Here's a business which is a supplier of, as it were, of its own of its own goods. It's also the marketplace for immense number of other suppliers. So there's a conflict of interest there. Pretty obvious conflict of interest between the Amazon marketplace and the Amazon as supplier. And the question is, is that a fair competition? Is it one, or is this should this marketplace be completely and totally separated from the rest of Amazon? That's a pretty natural. Question. Another question you might ask is, can we allow businesses to buy businesses that are potential competitors? You know, uh, when WhatsApp was bought, for example, should that have been allowed? And my own view of that is, no, it should not have been allowed. So these are exactly the sorts of questions that, that are being asked by the uh, Biden administration now. And since the US is where the tech sector is dominant, and that's a great achievement, that's where they have to be raised and answered.
2: Okay, competition. Second area, state funded deep research.
1: Well, we're obviously concerned about growth. You know, our economy has been stagnant. Britain is particularly bad for 15 odd years. And that is part of the reason why we have a cost-of-living crisis, part of the reason why people have lost confidence in the future. So we've got to generate more growth. Uh, Now, this leads to the question of what sort of economic policy will do so. And I do think there's going to have to be more public sector investment. A lot of that's going to be in infrastructure. We have to raise investment in infrastructure, essential services. But another thing, or another joint area is increased spending and scientific research, which I think this government recognizes here, and and also in direct funding of the transfer, the transfer of that research into commercial activity through um, the funding of uh, and promotion of venture capital and even more mid-stage funding. So it's quite a complicated package that has to be developed in order to get New firms, new startups, beginning to make a real impact on the British economy, and uh, that's the sort of thing I have in mind here.
2: Uh, you talk about equality of opportunity, which I think most people think is is getting worse. You know, there's less of it about than there used to be, which uh, is counterintuitive. Everyone thought that uh, this would be something that could, as countries got
1: richer, become more, you know, evenly spread, but it's not the case, right? Well, the evidence we seem to have is two things are going on. Three things are going on. First, the number of good new jobs in our economy is not growing as fast as it used to in the 50s and 60s. Not much can be done about that without faster growth. That's a necessary condition, possibly not a sufficient one, but that fits together. The second is, In a society where there are already a lot of very educated people, really a lot of people, so many parents now are already university educated, and where there are very large regional inequalities, both of these, to some extent, go together, if you are born to people who are very low incomes, not themselves been highly educated, in a poor region, which therefore tends to have relatively poor schooling, relatively poor social infrastructure, the chances that you're going to succeed in a world in which education is crucial for getting onto the ladder, in a way it wasn't half a century ago, the chances are really low when you're competing with uh, the children of middle and upper middle class who live in London and the southeast, go to better schools, even if they're state schools, they're better funded, better resourced, have, have above all, even more important than that, have uh, um, parents, all of whom are very motivated to, to promote the, the success of their children. This is an environment in which social mobility, income mobility in particular, is reduced. And all the evidence we have is that in relatively unequal countries like ours and the US, social mobility is less because of this cumulative disadvantage process that I've just described very briefly. Would you go as far as some suggest in
2: the UK, but maybe surprisingly few, as as abolishing the private schools which educate about 7% of British children and seem to confer huge advantages on them in terms of their career prospects and so on. I mean, do you think it would be socially beneficial to to either close that sector down or, or open it up to uh, anyone to
1: get access to it? Well, i much prefer the latter. I, I mean, the honest truth, I mean, I'd have to be public about this. My uh, children went to private schools for their secondary education, that they all went to state schools for their primary education. The honest truth for me is I can perfectly well see the argument for closing them, but it's also, to me, a a pretty intolerable restriction on human freedom to force everybody into a monopoly state system that doesn't work very well. So my personal preference would be for these schools to be required to do what Harvard is supposed to do, which is needs blind admission. Namely, they they open their schools to everybody and they take people on merit and they have to find ways of funding the people who can't pay for it themselves. Now, that's obviously very naive, financially very difficult. The alternative way was the which was in place in the 50s and 60s when I was at school, is the assisted places scheme that was actually funded by the state. So there were free places offered to people on the basis then of the 11 plus to all to the private schools and my own school. That was very important at that time. Many of the pupils were of that kind and they did very, very well. So I would like to open them up if at all possible. I'm very uncomfortable about closing down the best schools in the country And I'm very uncomfortable about telling parents, you just cannot opt out. But I think this is a really tricky issue. And I understand very well the views of on the other side.
2: Now, just finally, on this um, economic section, as it were, and what what needs to be done, you talk about conspicuous consumption in the book as being almost as important as the inequality. It's the the seeing the inequality. I, I always remember that there was a British minister called Peter Mandelson who said something like, I'm fabulously relaxed about the very rich. Or there was some such quote. And, and I get the impression you're not fabulously r- relaxed about it.
1: If the elite is seen as having completely different lives from oneself, this almost inevitably promotes unhappiness and distress. But what what can be done about it is not at all obvious. And I have to say, in the... Motivation for right wing populism—it seems to be relatively, a relatively small part of what is driving people. Because they wouldn't vote for Trump if, for example, if they if that was really what bothered them. What bothers me, troubles me more, is that people seem to almost love the the vulgar rich. Often, well, I, what I would think of as the vulgar rich, and what the people they really hate are the people below them. And so social response to an economy, a society like ours, which is quite unequal, is also often very unpredictable and quite puzzling. In terms of the political uh, reforms that
2: uh, you're you're discussing, I mean, there's one obvious one, which is immigration, which arguably has driven a lot of this recent uh, politics. How important is
1: the immigration issue? Uh, How do you see changing it? Well, I put forward a fairly fundamental point, which is, and I'm obviously controversial with many people. I mean, a democracy is a state, a a territorial jurisdiction in which decisions are made by citizens. Citizens are an exclusive group. They don't include everybody in the world. They include people with what is a political entitlement to a say in the, in in the behavior, uh, in in the decision-making of a particular jurisdiction. And citizenship is not a right. It's a privilege. And if you, once you accept the idea, which I do, I'm very clear about that, that ultimately immigrants who live here and want to, in a country, should be entitled to become citizens, and that in any case they become part of the economy and freely part of the economy, there's no other way to do it that seems to me right, then... the the citizens as a whole have a right to decide who is entitled to be an immigrant there are also some economic arguments but pretty obvious economic arguments that it would have to be controlled if the society and economy is to be stable at all because the potential for immigration is so colossal so there has to be there's a right to control immigration and there have to be controls on immigration. Now, I don't discuss in detail what immigration policy should then be, because that I think depends very much on the polity that you're talking about. They are very different opportunities and positions, but they have to be controls. And I do think that the sense that you know, there was no control or almost no control of the number of people coming into your country and who they were and their qualifications, all the rest of it. That sense was a very big factor in the populist upsurge in Britain and in America. And and you have to respond to it. So we need new policies, which do include controls. These are very, very difficult to implement. And it's a huge challenge, but I don't see how you can get away from the fact that a democratic polity is going to have to decide who can come and live there.
2: Now, that when you when you take all that together, all these sort of reforms you're talking about, they sound yeah, not impossible, but difficult, and especially difficult in the current environment where it is a post truth world and there's all this yeah you know, so much going on that's new and difficult. Are you optimistic? Yeah, you said you could, you're alert to pessimism at the beginning. Are, are you optimistic that this can be done, or, or do you think? you know, a young Chinese civil servant or uh, Chinese businessman would be more optimistic
1: about the future that their their model will prevail? I think they have done the latter. I think, particularly after the last 10 years, radical slowdown in the economy, although s- still growing faster than ours, but immensely rapid slowdown from 10% growth to maybe 4 a hyper-centralization of political power with a new ruler for life, it appears, who is in total control and who makes what seem the most arbitrary and whimsical decisions. In addition, China has a very real demographic problem with very rapid aging of the population, a profound, I think, and worrying split between the business elite and the political those in political power. I think if I were Chinese, I would not be completely confident of the future and I I, I don't think we'll know but I suspect that's true Um, because in the end I think I do remain very confident of one thing that in the long run as we've experienced um, free societies do better than dictatorships and for very good reason so I'm not worried about that competition if we can avoid I'm much more concerned that we'll end up in a horrible war, and you know, nuclear war—that really terrifies me. And of course, that we will fail to manage our climate problems. So those really worry me. In terms of our own system, I'm the optim. The thing that makes me feel optimistic is people must begin to realize, and I think they are beginning to realize that these populist autocrats they voted for are incompetent buffoons, and they're not solving their our problems. Their just their rhetoric conceals their inability to, to solve our problems. Maybe that will give us more confidence in people who know what they're talking about, and that's part of what I discussed. So that will be my optimistic hope for the future: that we will learn from our mistakes, provided we can keep on having fair elections. You just you just made me think because I, I spent a lot of time in Pakistan and, and uh, that
2: part of the world, and there. Yeah, uh, you know, a lot of people, young people in the Middle East want jihadist governments until they have one, <laughs> and then they they see what it's like, and they 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 become quite unpopular. Those governments, indeed. But I mean, when you look at the growth of China, it it does pose a much bigger challenge than Russia, doesn't it? Because of course, yeah, you know, the Russian system was so flawed economically, it could never, in the end, compete with the West, whereas China can
1: i the rise of China is i in a geopolitical and geoeconomic event of the first order there's absolutely no doubt about it. China is a colossus it has more people than all of the Western world together i mean almost twice as many. The Chinese people are a spectacularly capable people they 're in superb organization they 've created a mix of an authoritarian political system with a market economy that has worked very well for four decades, bringing them from extreme poverty to being on some measures the biggest economy in the world. I take them very, very seriously. We have to deal with them. We have to cooperate with them. We're going to have to compete with them. And we have to avoid conflict, outright conflict. But I still do feel that if the Western world can deal with its current problems, which is a big challenge. And if it recognizes, understands what has made it work, we still have a better and more attractive system. We're much richer. We still have, overall, a much greater part of the world's intellectual resources than China. We can do it if we believe in ourselves. And there's no doubt in my mind, for all our faults and flaws, and there are many, are are better societies with better principles than Chinese communism, even though I agree Chinese communism is surely much, much, much better than the Soviet version was.
2: Uh, just one last question, and I'm really not making light of your family's experience. But if if you were, you know, if you, if, you were, if you were thinking it's going wrong and there are more and more signs that uh, these reforms you're urging uh, aren't happening, demagogues, are becoming stronger. There are more Trumps and more authoritarianism. You know, Do you worry that if if you were maybe telling your children or grandchildren to get in that trawler, there'd be nowhere to go?
1: Yes, I think there that, that wouldn't be. That's, the point is, we are the last redoubt. I mean, the, the truth is, and I mentioned this in the book, that if you look back on the history of the 20th century, there's a perfectly good argument that liberal democracy, uh, our system survived essentially because of Britain and the United States. And it might have been an accident. Maybe it Maybe wasn't inevitable. So that's why I'm so exercised, you know, because particularly the US, which is the core of our, the, the arsenal of democracy, famously, if the US crumbles to the sort of grubby little autocrat like Trump or somebody like that, what is left it's, it might be somewhere, you know, I know people who want to go to New Zealand. I'm not saying there aren't very nice countries that might survive, but they'd be small outposts. The most successful, stable, prosperous democracies now are really quite small countries, or many of them are quite small countries. So I think there isn't anywhere to go. And that's why we, we have to stand and fight where we are. I believe it's very far from hopeless. If I did, I wouldn't have written this book. But I think we, ha- we can't be complacent. Martin Wolf, thank you very much for giving us so much of your time. Great pleasure. Thank you.